Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A year and a half ago, a good friend of mine moved back to town. It seems like forever ago now, since it was in mid-2019 and long before this coronavirus pandemic was upon us. It does seem like an age has passed since then. Anyway, this friend had recently gone on a date with a doctor in town, and the two of them had fallen into a conversation about God. My friend believes in God, even though he does not regularly attend worship. His date, on the other hand, was a committed atheist. My friend challenged his date to debate me about God. Apparently, my friends like offering up me as debate fodder. Here was someone, my friend's date, committed to science, and he couldn't bring himself to believe in a higher power. Now, sadly, this proposed debate never materialized. The other person backed out. But it does bring up a significant question. What would you say to someone in a debate like that? Now, perhaps you are not the type of person uh, who likes to debate others. There are plenty of people who would rather spend time conversing about other things, about, say, less controversial things than whether God exists. But either way, you have to ask yourself, how do I justify a belief in God? How do I make sense of it? The question is a significant one. And so during this Lent, I've decided to explore this very topic. What would you say to someone who doesn't believe in God? How might you construct your argument? Which arguments, which rational frameworks resonate most with you? The first three of these sermons looked at various philosophical approaches to the question of God. We began with process theology, something that originated with the 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. Next, we looked at Christian existentialism, and particularly the writings of Paul Tillich. And last week, we considered personal idealism and the writings of Keith Ward. Today, I want to take a slightly different approach to the same question. I want to look at religion and science. How does or how might religious belief be reconciled to science? At First Congregational, we all value the insights of science. Many of you spent your careers as geologists, chemists, or engineers. Science matters. So how might religion and science fit together? What's one thing we could say? For the most part, religion and science have what Stephen Jay Gould called non-overlapping magisteria. In other words, they deal with two entirely different aspects of our lived experience. Science is not very good at answering questions of ultimate meaning or ethics. Similarly, religion has proven totally inept when it has tried to answer scientific questions. According to someone like Stephen Jay Gould, each should stay in its own lane. Since no definition of God claims that God is made up of matter, science cannot disprove God's existence. God is not a thing, a being, that you can run experiments on. Nevertheless, there is one scientific perspective that, while it wouldn't rule out God altogether, it would make God functionally irrelevant. And that scientific perspective is known as reductionism. Reductionism is the theory that everything that happens in the universe can be reduced down to a series of laws and interactions on an atomic or subatomic level. 
It theorizes that everything can be explained. We can have a theory of everything by understanding matter on its most basic level. If you want to understand the working of the brain, you have to understand the nature of neurons and the chemicals in the brain that interact with neurons. And if we want to understand those chemical interactions, we have to understand the molecules that lead to those interactions. And if we want to understand the molecules, we have to understand the atoms that make up those molecules and the particles that make up those atoms. Now, when we do this, we can explain, theoretically, how the brain works. It's all about reducing everything to its lowest level, examining what happens there, and then building causation from the bottom up. In theory, if reductionism is, is correct, we could eventually explain everything that happens in the universe from the smallest particle to the movement of the solar systems. Now, this sounds simple and intuitive, but it has some pretty far-reaching consequences. If everything that happens in the universe can be explained by lower-order lower interactions, what does that mean for something like human free will? According to reductionists, human consciousness is what's known as an epiphenomenon. Consciousness is an accidental byproduct of the neurons in our brains, but it has no real significance. Our actions are determined not by our conscious brains, but by the chemical interactions that undergird them. Consciousness is an illusion. We think we have free will. We think we're deciding to do something. But in reality, our brains tell our bodies what to do, and then our consciousness justifies that behavior as something that we chose. Think of it this way. An ant, as far as we know, does not have any conscious brain. An ant merely acts and responds based on whatever actions are hardwired into its body. Ants instinctively follow to look for food or gather around a queen. There is no conscious action on behalf of an ant. According to reductionists, we are actually like ants. We act according to the underlying chemical processes in our body based on response to external stimuli. We would act that way regardless of what's going on in our conscious minds. The universe is, in effect, a vast and complex machine. Like with a computer, the actions of the universe are based on the code that underlies the universe. That code is encapsulated in our subatomic particles that make up everything else. Theoretically, if you could account for all the vari variables, you could predict exactly what would happen at every moment in the universe. Reductionists, therefore, are determinist. What happens in the world is a result of lower-level interactions that are predictable. We have no conscious control over it. It's all about physics, chemistry, and biology at their most basic levels. As one author encapsulated it, Darwinian evolution teaches us that we are incipient compost, assemblages of complex molecules that, for no greater purpose than to, than to secure sources of energy against competing claims, have developed the ability to speculate. After a few score years, the molecules disaggregate and return whence they came. Period. According to the reductionist view, science teaches us that we are just a random collocation of atoms, nothing more. There is no purpose to anything. 
If we experience joy, it's merely an evolutionary accident of chemicals in our brains that are designed to further the organism for certain near-term goals. That, according to reductionists, is the reality of life. Now, whatever goes on in our brains is going to be what it's going to be. We can tell ourselves that we have control, but we don't. You go up to get food out of the fridge, let's say, not because you choose to do so, but because the various molecules in your body lead it to happen. Simple as that. In a true reductionist framework, there is no room for God, at least a God that doesn't violate the laws of nature. All that is in the universe can be explained by the general theory of everything once we find it. It's all basic science. There is no God of the gaps because there will be no gaps in our understanding of the universe once we figure it all out. That, after all, is why we have built that huge particle collider underground in CERN, Switzerland. Once we get small enough, once we can comprehend what really makes up the stuff of the universe, we'll have it all figured out. This reductionist mindset is, without a doubt, helpful for science. It's crucial for scientific exploration that we do try to discover the cause of things. Exploring gene expressions that lead to cancer can save lives. This involves seeking out the cause of something at a lower level. But we don't have to be reductionists in order to value science. There are other ways to view the universe. And one such way is through the lens of emergence. Emergence is actually a pretty simple way of looking at things. A reductionist might say that if you want to understand something, you have to take it apart and see what constitutes it. Once you do that, you'll have it all figured out because the whole is merely the sum of its parts. An emergentist would argue that the whole is not merely the sum of its parts. Oftentimes the whole is something a great deal more than its parts. In fact, the discipline of chemistry relies upon this fact. All water is, is two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. But when you look at hydrogen gas and oxygen gas separately at room temperature, you realize that the sum is more than the individual parts. Liquid water is categorically more than the two gases that constitute it. This is true on so many levels of science. It's not simply about putting together various pieces. It's about when you put together certain pieces, something radically different can manifest itself. Not only that, but the environment in which you put things together makes a difference. Take the example of snowflakes. The structure of a snowflake depends on the specific temperature hum and humidity that interact at particular moments to form their unique crystals. Water becomes ice differently in different environments. And here's where things start to get even more interesting. When you combine certain molecules together in certain circumstances, you get organic compounds that then take on a life of their own. These organic compounds have a purpose. They reproduce themselves, they find energy. There's a higher level function that emerges. Causality becomes top down, not merely bottom up. In other words, once you put, certain, once you put things together in a certain way, the underlying molecules are no longer the only thing that's in control. 
The organism itself has evolved to direct itself to do various things. The organism exerts control over its molecules to particular ends. The prototypical example of this is the highest level of complexity that we know of in the universe, and that is human consciousness. Contrary to the argument of reductionists, emergentists fervently argue that we do have free will. Human consciousness allows us to act, to examine the world, to write books, for instance, to do scientific experience, experiments, to change our world in radical ways. Humans are able to act in ways that are not deterministic. This is because, as the elements that make up the universe form higher-level organisms, those higher-level organisms are more than the sum of their parts. Causation is not merely from the bottom up. Higher-level organisms can affect and direct the molecules around them to interact in new and different ways, ways that are not always predictable. Moreover, the various environments in which, say, human consciousness interacts affects our consciousness and our consciousness, in turn, affects our environment. So our culture, the people around us, our language, what is available to us, that affects our conscious brains. And our conscious brains also exercise agency over our environments and, say, our culture and other people. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, what on earth does this have to do with God? Well, if you take a purely reductionist viewpoint, there is no space for God in your model of the universe. Everything in the universe is about particle physics. It operates from the bottom up. But if, on the other hand, you take an emergentist viewpoint, space for God opens up. There is potentially more to the universe than just lower order stuff. When the stuff of the universe comes together, new things emerge, new things that are categorically different than the stuff that composes them. A living organism is more than, say, a rock. It is categorically different. It is affected by its environment and exerts influence over its environment. The same thing is true of human consciousness. Consciousness allows humans to do things like scientific experiments. Humans can mold our environment in profound, even earth-altering ways. It is a higher order of, exist of existing than non-conscious entities. Now, if human consciousness is a result of things coming together in a new way, why can't or why wouldn't there be something on a higher order even than that? If consciousness exists, why couldn't a higher spiritual level exist in, which the universe, in the universe in which things come together? Just as human consciousness transcends the stuff of our brains, couldn't a divine consciousness, a divine mind, a spiritual dimension, transcend the stuff of the universe? Moreover, if, if alternate universes could theoretically exist within an emergentist and quantum physics framework, couldn't there also be a spiritual level that exists beyond this universe? It's certainly possible. And if such a spiritual dimension does exist, then it would explain the phenomenon of our experiencing spirituality in this world. All over the world and throughout time, humans have attested to the experiences of the divine. This is not some isolated thing. It would make sense that, just as human consciousness can affect the world in a top-down causation, that the spiritual dimension could also affect us. This would also explain the great religious traditions of the world. In a time before quantum physics, in a time of so-called classical physics, 
The system of classical physics explained nearly every phenomenon in the world, but it didn't explain everything. It didn't explain how gravity affected light or how gravity affected time. Classical physics merely dismissed these observations as aberrations. It was only with Einstein's theory of relativity and then the expanding field of quantum mechanics that scientists could fit these observable phenomena in a framework that makes sense. Now, perhaps the same thing is true for the divine and spiritual order of the universe. People for thousands of years have argued that such a spiritual order exists based on our experiences of the world. Maybe those experiences are not simply wish fulfillment or accidental mishaps in our brains. Maybe they do reflect some deeper reality of the universe. We don't know for sure, but there is reason to believe that such a world can and might exist. One theologian who writes eloquently on these issues is Philip Clayton. He lays out his argument most thoroughly in his 2004 book, Mind and Emergence, From Quantum to Consciousness. Using the basic emergence framework that I laid out, Clayton argues that it is rational and scientifically possible to theorize about God in much the same way that Alfred North Whitehead's process theology proposes. Like Whitehead, Clayton theorizes that God is dipolar. There are two aspects to God. One is the eternal mind that encompasses all of creation. It's something we see in Hindu and Buddhist traditions, as well as in certain Christian theologies. Alfred North Whitehead called it the primordial nature of God. But God is also present in the purposiveness of creation. As I mentioned earlier, higher-level organisms exhibit top-down causation. Living organisms function, move, and exist on their own, quite separate from the effects of the molecules that comprise them. Clayton argues that God is present within that level of life, luring creation towards growth, wholeness, and life. This is very much in line with what Whitehead called the consequent nature of God. Now, Philip Clayton is an unabashed panentheist. He believes that God both encompasses all of creation and is also intimately involved in, in creation and in the creative process. Clayton's theological system is based on this emergence theory. It's based on the observation that higher-level entities are more than the sum of their parts, that they are affected by their environment, and that they exhibit top-down causation. For Clayton, emergence and God go hand in hand. We can see how Clayton's model makes sense from a biblical perspective as well. Our reading for this morning comes from Psalm 107. The psalmist thanks God for healing brought about by God's love. Now, the psalmist assumes that humans have free will. They can choose what they do. They can choose to turn away from goodness, creation, wholeness, and love. But they can also return to God. They can feel the spiritual presence of God within them. They can feel the lure of love. God doesn't violate any laws of nature in Psalm 107. God is a God of steadfast love. And it is that love, that presence, that heals. Obviously, the theological speculations of Philip Clayton go far beyond science. As I mentioned earlier, 
the fact that emergence describes the functioning of the universe does not mean that God exists. It only means that the theoretical framework exists for God and for a spiritual dimension to the universe. In the end, it is up to us as conscious beings to decide what we think about God. We have to think about what makes sense of our experiences of the world. Does it make sense for a higher order, a higher state, to exist beyond human consciousness? If consciousness can exist out of nature, if it is possible for that higher level to exist, which can exert causal, causal, causal influence on lower orders, could something beyond our consciousness also exist? If such, a, if such a spiritual dimension does exist, have you experienced it? There's one important thing we have to mention at this point, because there's more to belief in God than simply explaining the spiritual experiences you might have had. It is also about a quest for meaning. A reductionist view on the world is one that claims, without hesitation, that the world has no meaning. We are organisms like every other organism. We live and then die. And if that is the case, what should we do? What should we make of this world? Friedrich Nietzsche captures this sentiment when he wrote, Once upon a time, in a distant corner of the universe, with its countless flickering solar systems, there was a planet. And on this planet, some intelligent animals discovered knowledge. It was the most noble and mendacious minute in the history of the universe, but it was only a minute. After nature had breathed a few times, their star burned out, and the intelligent animals had to die. So is that it? We theorize about God. We take a leap of belief, not just to explain the world around us as we experience it, but also to make meaning. Is there some deeper meaning to life, some meaning that has its source in the spiritual dimension of the universe? Now, some people eschew metaphysical speculation because they say it has no purpose. Why muse about the nature of things beyond what we can see and prove? But that is nonsense. Everyone searches for meaning. Only some do it with more intention and thoroughness than others. We theorize about God so we can give a coherent order to the world, an order that our rational minds cry out for. When God has a place in those systems, the world around us becomes pregnant with meaning and purpose. A spiritual dimension exists, we assert, one that calls us to, a, to greater love and wholeness and peace and joy. Is it a choice to believe such a thing? Of course it is. But it's a choice, it's, this, it's a decision for meaning. It's a choice that, as I've tried to argue these past few weeks, does make rational sense. You don't have to put aside your mind to believe it. But we make the choice because it resonates with something deep inside us and makes the world full of hope. During Lent, during this coronavirus pandemic, I make that choice for hope, that choice for God. What do you choose? What kind of world do you want to live in?